this light bulb clicked on for me some number of years ago. But it was this idea that when we talk about production versus pre-production versus prototyping and ideation and all these things, we talk about it like it is a step change function. And the step change function is like a block. You are at zero and suddenly you're at one, right? And there's this moment in time where you go from one to the other. Real game development doesn't look like that. Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games. Terms like production, pre-production, and ideation are supposed to provide you with certainty, clear project progress, and reasonable timelines for game delivery. Most of the time though, they fail to add that clarity. Why is that? Have you ever struggled to explain where your project was in development because it seems somewhere between two phases? Has your game team felt rushed to get to production even though you aren't even sure what the game is? Have you seen games where once production hits, everything becomes so on rails that key learnings don't ever seem to make their way back into the product? In this episode, we want to talk about the game development life cycle and challenge a lot of the poor assumptions leaders make within it. Finally, we'll break down for you what your role as a leader is during each part of the process. As we were prepping for this podcast and thinking about this topic, so much of my mind went to once again, the mainstream attempt to put a sort of repeatable frame, like a process over how we do this stuff, which ends up just removing human judgment out of the equation. How many game projects have we seen follow that sort of standard SDLC flow, like pre-production to production to post-production and somehow just completely implode in so many ways where it's like, is anyone actually thinking about what the game is? Has a player actually seen this? Like, what's the thesis behind this? Like I asked 10 people, tell me about the game. And I got 10 different answers in your leadership team. So like, what good did the SDLC do you in this case, other than just provide you a bunch of labels to put on stuff? I think you nailed it when you said the SDLC is a thing that removes human judgment from software development, where you and I might say that, hey, if you're trying to serve an audience and you're trying to really add value into the world and do a good job at that, the decisions removed by the process are going to hurt you. I remember talking with someone about the SDLC recently and they said, look, man, one of the reasons Microsoft is so successful is because they developed the SDLC. They developed an SDLC and what it allowed them to do is actually not have to worry so much about the quality of everybody involved from a leadership and judgment perspective. When you think about Microsoft as a giant company, what were they doing? Well, they were often in spaces where they were the only ones playing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're taking, if the project is taking Excel 5 to Excel 6, that is a more appropriate environment to consider something like an SDLC, you know, where there's a repeatability to it. But there's also like, oh my God, you already know who your customers are. Oh my God, they've already bought the thing. Yeah. Oh my God, you already know what it is. Yes. Yes. Like, if you are working for Microsoft on the Excel team, I would dare say you have a decent idea of what the value prop is for Excel. Right. Like it's it's been around forever. And and by the way, that's the area, we come back to this time and time again, that's the area where we see teams struggle. And so something like an SDLC, something like, you know, we're in ideation, now we're in pre-production, now we're in production, that's not gonna help you solve that problem. Correct. All it will do 
is provide you with a set of labels that are devoid of meaning out of the box until you give them meaning. We still use these terms and they do have meaning and they do have shared meaning. It's one of the things that's most useful about them. People often understand where a project is at based on these terms. Um, so we're going to walk through what does it mean to be in each phase as you flow between them and kind of how we want you thinking in those spaces. So the five phases we're going to talk through, there's ideation, also sometimes known as prototyping. There's pre-production, there's production, post-production, and sustainment. And sometimes you'll see people combine like post-production and sustainment or other things, but we'll, we'll be working with that. So basically ideation, pre-production, production, post-production, post sustainment. And by the way, right off the bat, people are going to disagree, especially in the upfront phases. This is exactly my point. I don't want to get into rules lawyering about what pre-production technically means. Again, we're going to try to create a narrative flow here that hopefully yes. adds value and makes sense and is something you can use and keep in your back pocket. That's the goal. Yes, because you don't step change between them. You flow between them. So it's far more important to understand it as more of a giant curve as opposed to a bunch of steps. So, okay, ideation slash prototyping. What are you thinking? I mean, again, the, my sort of vague definition of ideation and prototyping is uh, basically the identification of one or more theses that, hey, if we made this thing, it would be valuable to these people. And I think you really should think through what it is that's the value and who it's for this early on. In fact, I think that that should constantly be permeating throughout every conversation the team is having. And like sort of, again, from a product management point of view, what is the business case here? And what, like, how are we actually, how would this in theory delight customers? And then the prototyping ends up being building the most minimalistic thing. And that could be on paper. It could be technology. It could be anything cheaper, the better to validate or invalidate that. Maybe there's some way that I don't even understand to go out and compile a bunch of data about products that already exist where you identify a niche that is currently there and already underserved. I've seen great businesses started like that where it's like, hey, you know, um, there's actually uh, only four games in this subgenre and there's, you know, 40 million people playing them. And these are low quality products right now. And if you read all the feedback, these players have these issues. And so, you know, you're again, what you're doing is you're building a product thesis. And as you move towards pre-production, my hope is that what's happening is the, the amount of possible theses that you have for different products is narrowing down to maybe like one or two to the point where you're like, okay, now it starts to make sense for us to build a little bit of infrastructure around one or two of these ideas to sort of like bolt it down and really validate, is there actually a function game here? Yes. That's the way I think about it. And the one, the one other thing I would add, your currency during this phase is learning. Like, what are yeah. the questions that you have? Like, what do you need to know to feel confident that this is valuable to somebody or that you know mm -hmm. who that person is? Those are the questions you need to figure out answers to and find any way you can think of to get answers to those questions is fair game in my, my book. I love how you just made that more specific where it's not just learning, it's learning about the audience. It's learning about sort of core elements of the, the game itself. Yeah. Okay, so then we're going to start flowing out of ideation slash prototyping. We're probably going to have a prototype. It's kind of coming together. We're validating it both internally and hopefully somewhat externally with either friends and family or parts of the company or whatever. And so now we're starting to get a handle on like, okay, we think we have a prototype. We think we know the audience. We think we know the core tenets of the game. 
and it's time to start moving into pre-production. Yeah. Or it's really, again, think about that as that ramp. We're going to start ramping up the pre-production stuff as we ramp down the ideation prototyping things. So what's going on here? Again, uh, so much of this is my personal in interpretation of my history of this. So I'm sure these things could all be debated until the cows come home. But I very much view this phase as the time in which we build, we build a physical product. Um, and when I say product, I don't mean something that goes to market, but something that somebody can interact with as a player and, and get hooked engagement wise. So mm -hmm. to me, a, a really positive outcome of the pre-production phase is like, Hey, we're play testing this product internally and everyone at the company can't get enough of it because all they want to do is play test the game. Um, and again, even if it's a shoddy prototype, that's something you could never send to mass market. I would say that to me, I feel like that's winning during that phase. So, and again, you may also still have a couple key, like major paradigm shift directions you can go during this phase, but you've at least narrowed it down to two or three. Um, you may mm -hmm. not know exactly what your core game loop is. So maybe you just focus on building that core game loop to hook everyone first, but there's other parts of the game, maybe like metagame progression or leveling up and stuff is not done yet but like people can jump into the core game loop and like really have a blast. And there's something happening there. There's magic happening there. And again, yeah. I wish I could be more specific about it than that, but this is a creative endeavor. So, you know, you're gonna have to figure out what this means for your project. But I would say that's what you're looking for is like, you'll know, I really do think you'll know when you see it, when that magic is there, when people can't stop playing it because it's so fun, that still does not guarantee market success but I think it puts you in a hell of a lot better position to move forward into production. Like if you've got that and you move into production, like I have no criticisms for you again, still no guarantees, but like you are ahead of 95% yes. of the pack. If that's, if that's where you're at, when you move into production. As production is ramping up, we were talking a lot about learning and what you're trying to learn about and all these different things. At this point, you're trying to learn less and you're trying to add value more. Here, you're still learning. You're learning about those more granular bits. Like you're learning about the details now. And also, there's this point where you have to commit to something. We've chosen a path. Let's walk that path. And that's why, to this point, you've been doing so much product validation. Yeah, one thing we didn't mention in pre-production, that's when you're doing things like alpha tests. You're trying to get exposure from broad numbers of players and things like that. Um, a lot of places... We'll try not to do that until production, but like you want to do that as early as possible because when you go into production, there is to some extent this commitment. And the reason there's a commitment is because here's where you actually start hiring large numbers of even more engineers and more designers to do all the detailed bits and more audio people and more artists and the marketing team. And you start spinning up the release team and you start setting up servers around the world to play test this and you start doing the regional play. Like this is a, this is a big phase and you're still learning and you may still end up canceling this or going back phases, but the consequence when you hit production of doing either of those things is much greater and the burn rate is much higher. And so a lot of what you're thinking about in production is, okay, we've figured out our thesis. We know what our game is. How do I most efficiently and effectively deliver the promise of this game, the engagement of this game to all these people? There should be no fundamental questions about what is valuable in this context at this point. Who our audience is, what we're trying to do, and why that's valuable should all be relatively entrenched. 
Yes. Something to keep an eye out for here. You want to hire a lot of people because you want to go faster. That's actually something you're going to do in this phase if your game has a lot of content. Absolutely. Be careful because sometimes by hiring engineers, you hire some engineers, they make your tool chain better. They make it easier to make things. You don't need as many artists or audio people or designers or something like that. That can pay off huge. Engineers continuing to focus on internal development while also simultaneously having other engineers that are building out the features and whatever else like metagame progression and release and server infrastructure type stuff. Don't forget your own internal development practices and tools because if you neglect that stuff in this phase, it is just going to start compounding. Like the debt from that on the art side, on the engineering side, on the design side is just going to start compounding. To some extent, I think that's always going to happen a little bit, but like you want to be as, as ahead of that as you can be. Uh, so don't undervalue engineers just helping other people move faster because this is a phase that is largely about delivery. And the other thing is that if you allow your artists and your audio people and your designers to work fast, it means they can still iterate. They get more than one chance to solve each problem. They can try a couple things because it's easy for them to, let's say, you know, mock up something, put it in game, see what it looks like and be like, that didn't work, throw it away try something else. You'll be doing that still in production. It's just to a much smaller degree. So let's talk about post-production. One of the things I think is really important during post-production that I often don't see, and it's a shame, and I understand the reality of this, is I feel like a lot of post-production phases are, when it comes to the game, are characterized by like this, we've got this crappy kind of product that's like hobbling along and all the bugs and all the memory leaks and all the like performance issues that have just, we've just pushed off to the last minute become now this pile of poop that we have to sort of like shovel during post-production. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is that most game companies aren't even able to shovel all that poo before they release. And that goes well past the point of release. And like, if you're a player of games right now, you know this, it's reality. In essence, our advice would be, if you're a leader on a project, be very careful about going into post-production if the product has like severe quality issues. Yeah. Like if you were to try to release it today, if it would essentially be non-functional, I think you're probably not ready for post-production. The ideal post-production phase as it pertains to the game would be characterized by how do we reduce friction in the experience and how do we reduce player pain as much as possible? Mm -hmm. So like that, I think frame or that orientation, I think would be a really, really good one. It's like, okay, where, and that could be fixing bugs or performance issues, but I think it's also like, there's a lot of opportunistic things in there as well. So it doesn't just again, become like, okay, how do we now for the first time ever have a functional product? Um, it's actually about like polish. It's a, that's my, how I think of polish, honestly. Yeah. Most people think of polish and like, well, let's make the art a little prettier or like whatever. And yeah, you know, and fix bugs. And for me, it's more like reducing friction to engagement and finding the areas that are pain points for players and just burning those down as much as possible. This is where I would say that even in production, doing the minimum necessary stuff first and then keeping it clean matters so much more. Fewer levels with higher quality is actually going to result, interestingly, in more levels overall than trying to do everything at once and having nowhere's near enough coverage. Post-production could also include like marketing, publishing, 
like a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of these kinds of things. And again, there's no way you have you are just starting those conversations in post production, but uh, you are probably actually entrenching those systems that are going to get your game to the people you need it to get to, and also starting to think about the systems by which you will sustain the product. So the mm-hmm. next phase is sustainment, which is to me is pretty much all operationalization, which is like, how mm-hmm. do we sort of like continue to maintain this live thing that's out there in a live game environment? Or, you know, if it's a box product, like what does it mean to sustain that? Mm-hmm. Like, do we have DLC? Do we have patches? Like, how does that work? And I'm thinking during post-production, you are really entrenching the frameworks for and building the systems for those sustainment things. Yeah. I would say that the the most important thing about sustainment, it's going to sound silly. Don't break the core game. That's like, keep the game up, keep the game running. You've created an engaging product. People are engaging with it. If you're even thinking about sustainment, it means that there's probably some impetus from the market that like, wait a minute, this might have legs. We might be able to get expansions or DLCs. Like someone's going to want to play these. They're excited about what's coming in the future. All the little buggy things and the quirks and release and all that stuff that, you know, you've managed to get a game released around because there's going to be some of it. There's always going to be some of it. Tighten that stuff up. Don't break the core game. Uh-huh. Keep it compelling. Keep it fun. And here especially... Think about how like less is more. What are the most valuable things you could do to make the the game better? So what do we do with this? How do we actually lead well? You and I still use the terminology often around like, are you in production? Are you in pre-production? I think we use it as a common language, right? Yeah. And now I think really comes down to the assumptions that are in the back of brain for us versus the people that we're talking to. Exactly. And that's a lot of what this podcast is about. Yes. So for me, I want to talk about the one that, like, I can't remember when this this light bulb clicked on for me some number of years ago, but it was this idea that when we talk about production versus pre-production versus prototyping and ideation and all these things, we talk about it like it is a step change function. And a step change function is like a block, you know, it's just, you were at zero and suddenly you're at one, right? And then, you know, now you're at two and now you're at three. And there's this, there's this moment in time where you go from one to the other. Real game development doesn't look like that. It's much more like a a waveform with like a hill and then a a slope to a valley and then like something else starts and there's another hill and then it slopes back down to the valley. When you are in ideation, you can't think of ideation as this discrete phase that will end on a particular day. You don't just suddenly stop being in ideation. You slowly fade out of ideation while you're fading into pre-production, et cetera, et cetera. And what that means is that at any one time, you may have different parts of your project that are in different phases of development simultaneously. But if you're between ideation and and pre-production, there's sort of this like, yep, a lot of the people working on this project, they've already moved on. But we also know that there's still some of us that really have some serious questions to answer. And we view that as just like, well, wait a minute, we're we're in pre-production. We shouldn't be answering that question. And I've heard that sort of thing said. Well, yes, but actually that's not how real game development works. It does go in these more wave shapes than it does these block shapes. Um, And that's one of the biggest poor assumptions I see around navigating between the phases is this idea of like a step change of like, now it's all switched. 
Yeah. So to me, as we move forward in this conversation and start talking, the first question that pops up in my mind is what is the, this development life cycle conversation actually about? What is the conversation we tend to have around and what is the conversation we should be having? So an example is we tend to see that the SDLC conversation in video games is often about things that don't have to do with players or value. It is to do with things like, how do I know how many people I'm supposed to hire? How do I know how long things are supposed to take? How do I know how close we are to done? How do I know when I can ask my investors for more money? Like these are the questions that people tend to rush to when they think about things in terms of gates or whether we're in production or post-production or pre-production or whatever. But the way we try to train people to think about this is imagine, think about it in terms of cone of uncertainty. If you've ever, if you're familiar with that concept, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not, pause this really quick and go look it up on Google. It'll provide you with a brief explanation of what I'm talking about. It's our journey down the cone of uncertainty. And so once you think about it in those terms, you start to understand some basic things. You want less people up front and more people down the road. Why? Because the less certain you are of your thesis, the less certain you are that you know what you need to do to deliver value, the higher risk it is to have a higher burn rate up front, right? It's a very logical thing when you think about it from a code of uncertainty point of view. So you're, and, and we often talk too about like, what is your currency early on? Like, what is the primary way you want members of the team transacting amongst each other? Because the instinct as software developers or game makers is that we transact in things. Like, I can't tell you how many teams I've seen that are not technically in production yet, where they're just cranking out art assets faster than you've ever seen, like thousands of art assets in implicating dozens or hundreds of people worldwide. This is crazy, right? Because if you don't even know what your game is, a lot of that is waste. And so the idea is, is that the earlier you are on in the SCLC, the more waste that kind of activity is. So you're your currency is not stuff early on. Your currency is actually ideas and questions and answers and learning. So like Ben and I always try to encourage R&D teams or ideation teams, always like your backlog can be, what are the key questions we need to answer? And the finding the answers to those questions is value in that context. If I have like a 50 person team and we're all trying to decide a bunch of stuff about what the game is and what it's, the art style is and all this different stuff, it's easy to get locked into little like, well, this might be better and this might be better. And we end up arguing between a bunch of options that might work around art style and what's the fun part of the game and this and that and the other, where if you just have a few people, admittedly, you might not get the same breadth of ideas present, but you can make some decisions that allow you to move forward and see what's working and what's not more rapidly. You're building stuff to learn. And the problem with having a bunch of artists who are almost acting like they're in production, cranking out assets, we're not actually learning from those assets because often there's no real place for them to go in the game. There's no real way for anybody to interact with them. And so they're just making stuff, a bunch of which is going to be thrown away. You're like throwing, you're blindfolded, throwing darts and hoping some of them hit the target. And maybe some of them will, but the reality is that it's a very wasteful process because it's not providing you value or learning as you're often going forward doing that. One thing I wanted to call out here that, that struck me while we were talking your core game loop, like the design of the game, 
should lead the charge to some extent between these phases. And we've, I think, implied that in other things we've said, but it's most obvious between ideation and prototyping into pre-production. If I don't actually have something that's any good that I've in any way have like an actual prototype for, why in the world am I going into pre-production? That's unwise. Um, and if I'm pushing engineering and art into that, that next phase and audio, like they're all off there now, they're making pre-production stuff and solving big questions, but I don't actually know what my game is. It's possible that when my, if I figure out my core game and it's vastly different than what we expected or even somewhat different, all the work that everybody else is doing is wasted. So it's important that game design is leading the charge into the next phase. If you mess this up, you're more likely to waste a lot of work and hire a lot of people to do a lot of nothing. It's interesting the way you said this, because what I feel like you're touching on there is to me probably one of the most critical aspects of production, of the production phase, and how leaders should orient themselves towards production to get the best possible outcomes. And an example is like you and I view this as layers of an onion, right? Like where the core of the onion is that core game loop that you had during pre-production that really hyped people up, that really engaged people, that by whatever metric you measure that by, you saw good things happening there. For each new chunk of the work that happens during production or each new like big piece of the product, is to be seen as adding another layer around the outside of that. Yes. So that each layer is holistic. So this is gonna allow you to do two things. One, it's going to continue to ensure that your core game loop stays at the center of the experience, that you don't mm -hmm. compromise your core game loop for other things that are less important. The second thing is, is it gives you more flexibility to react to issues of budget, staffing, time, all this stuff. Like if something horrible happens and you have to release six months earlier than you expected or you run out of money or whatever, maybe you actually still have a functional product. You can get to yes. market. Now, the contrast with that that we actually see all the time is like, okay, we're going to put all these people over here and they're going to build the store. We're going to put all those people over there and they're going to build metagame progression. We're going to put all these people and they're going to keep working on the game loop. And we're sort of almost like dividing the project into like seven or eight giant, somewhat isolated buckets for each of the key pieces of the overall production plan that need to be done. And I'm like, be careful about that. I'm not saying that's bad. That to me feels more like slotting pieces into a linear plan than it does building layers of the onion. Yes. Yeah. I love how you said it because the game should remain at the center for everybody at the project. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about the incentive around production, especially. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I think this is something you've, you've thought a lot about, this idea that in the companies we've talked to, there's this drive to be in production. And yeah. it just seems like there's this huge incentive inside of organizations where it's yeah. like, if that, and we all wanna be in production. As soon faster we can get into production, like, I mean, obviously we wanna take something good, but like, let's get into production quick. Yeah, there's, so, there's no doubt in my mind that as an industry, we are production horny. There's something inherently less sexy about ideation, inherently less sexy about pre-production, inherently less sexy about post-production than there is about production. It's like a giant interstellar black hole that just sucks us all in. 
And now, I mean, I understand there's a, there's a couple things. One is that, again, I think as humans, we've talked about this and without getting too psychological about it, we like the place where we're just making stuff where it's like we're producing things. We feel good. We feel valuable. We feel useful. Another thing is, is we like not being scared that we don't have the answers. And oftentimes we are comfortable just pretending. And when we start making stuff and it's no longer acceptable to ask those questions anymore, we have the comfort of not having to deal with the unpleasant truth that we maybe don't know what the hell our game is. I want game teams to get much more excited about we had a great play test than we went from one phase to another. Yes. And I'll say that. I believe that that's true. Be aware of what a good play test is. We did a podcast on this a while ago. So go look that up if it, you think that'd be helpful. We talk a lot about play testing. But remember that what you're trying to get out of a play test is do players actually enjoy this experience? Did they derive value? Are they engaged? Is it, if you're going for fun, fun? Is it intense? If you're going for intense, like what is it that you're trying to achieve? Is that what's being achieved? You know, are people coming back? Are they, are they, did they play the whole play test? Did they want to play more? Because that stuff matters so much more than like we made it into production. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that is clearly illustrated to me by what we're talking about right now is that you have two distinct kinds of risks up front versus toward the end, right? Like up front, your risk is we don't have the answer to these questions, or we don't know what a good game is, or we don't agree on what the game is, or we don't know if this is possible, or, you know, we haven't validated this with players. Like these are the kinds of risks that the, it's the risk of not knowing the risk of not being confident in value in some way or another. Yep. Downstream, like toward the end, the risk is resource risk. Yeah. It's like we ran out of money or we weren't able to do it fast enough. Be careful about having both of those risks present at the same time. My criticism of companies, game companies that I see rush to production often is not, well, I don't understand your arbitrary gate criteria. Why did you do this? This doesn't make sense. Like I don't, I'm not interested in a philosophical conversation the sort of key issue that I see time and time again with game companies rushing to production too soon is you have 200 people, your burn rate is absolutely insane, and you don't even know where you're trying to go. Another thing is we see a lot of external funding motivation for this as well. We're running out of cash, so we need to get to production, or we need to show them that stuff is happening, so we need to get to production. And, and it seems like there's part of oftentimes part of the relationship between the builders and the financiers, it's not real until I can show you something tangible. My advice would be, we need to change the narrative away from when we're building stuff that's useful. I want to hear more stories about, wow, they just showed us a prototype. It went to 10,000 players. The stats are all off the charts. Everyone loved it. There's no other games like this. There's something really special here. I would like to see more situations like that becoming the norm for funding. Again, I don't know why that happens. Again, it would be interesting if anyone's listening to this and you have thoughts on this to comment and jump in on that. I think in even internally to larger companies like big game studios or publishers, when they're working with like known studios, if gates exist production seems to be one of the big, most important gates that unlocks a lot of resources for you. Uh -huh. A lot of people want to unlock those resources. The accepted higher burn rates that a production game gets inside of a large, very large studio slash publisher 
they want to get access to those people and resources. Oh, now we can actually start cranking everything out and we can start building all the assets. We can start doing all this stuff. We love building stuff. If I create four people working on an, in, a, in a room and they're doing paper prototypes, literal paper prototypes of a game, super smart thing to do actually. And they're trying out different stuff and they're playing the, the game and then they're trying out different stuff and they're playing the game. It's cheap. They can operate, they can iterate really quick. But if I bring a stakeholder or a C-level person into that room and I say, try this game with us, they're going to be like, what the heck is going on? Even if I go more advanced and we start tinkering around in Unreal or Unity or wherever else, everything's really simple, everything's really basic, we're starting to get a sense, right? But again, you bring in a stakeholder, you bring in a C-level executive, you bring in an investor. They're looking at it and they're going like, okay, it's really hard for me to see through the fog of low production quality to why you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to want this game. That's what they want to relate to. And we were working with a client recently and there was this obsession with the art quality. And one of the reasons was, well, when people look at the product from outside, when they see high fidelity assets, when they see nice looking menus or cool art moving around or high quality VFX, they go like, ooh, that looks pretty. You know, like, oh, I see the shiny. Yes, yes, more of that. And you don't realize like that's not actually helpful for the game. And I think that's another reason that like once you go into production, that's more okay. It's more okay to now start showing the production quality assets, right? We don't need to gray box thing because we're not prototyping anymore. We're not trying stuff out. We know and we're going forward. And so there's this rush to that without the acknowledgement of what scaling up your team does to your ability to learn. And, it, and in many ways, it, it diminishes it. When you're in ideation, you should be, it should just be all about learning. Everything is, you just toss everything all the time and you, you're trying to learn, you're trying to learn, you're trying to puzzle through it. But as you go further and further and further, you never stop learning, but you start learning about more and more granular parts of the project, right, of the game. You know, now it's less learning about like, what type of game is it or what type of FPS is it or something like that. Now it's more learning about like, how do we balance all the weapons just right in a multiplayer context and something like that. Like we know we have to do that eventually. And when you start getting into production, that's when you start tweaking those little levers. And how do we, you know, make each individual encounter just a little bit better? And how do we polish this and all this different stuff? All of that still involves learning, but you're learning about a more granular layer than you are in ideation. And that rushing to that state causes all the people that you're now hiring because you're in production to start solving little micro problems. And there's this sub-optimization thing where they all start solving and learning and building stuff to solve little bitty problems when the huge gaping problems often have remained unresolved from the beginning. I mean, it's, I often come back to thinking about the questions that leaders are asking of these game teams. Well, I do have a sympathy that where we off, most often see the use of the SDLC model is in situations where we've got like a portfolio of games and we have you know, central leadership functions that are trying to assess the different games and where they're at. If you're in one of those situations, my advice to the leaders would be to be careful about what question you're asking. Because the question you're asking is, when are you going to get into production? You are creating a set of incentives that is not going to serve the team. Yeah. It's not going to serve the player and it's not going to serve you. Unless you are already damn sure that you've got a blockbuster or a winner or a very, very strong thesis on your, on your hands that by the way, has been validated by people playing it and saying, I love this and saying, this is a coherent experience and all those things. You are wasting your time. All you're doing actually, frankly, 
is asking, hey, when are we going to get to that point where we can spend even more money and not know? That's the conversation you're having as a, a stakeholder. Change the conversation. Instead, say, tell me about why you think that this is going to be a hit. Tell me about what players are saying about this. What are the differentiators in the product so far that are working? What are the most complex problems and risks in this? And how are we addressing those? Ask those questions because that's going to drive actual clarity and actual value and incentivize your team to think about the right things. And if then they come back and they say, hey, we answered all your questions, but one of the things we realized is we're not actually ready to triple the team yet. Good for you because you just saved yourself 66% of your game budget over the next 18 months. This mm -hmm. is the way you need to think. It might sound ridiculous, but we have seen this problem time and time and time again, where because there's some sort of, you know, checkbox on a report somewhere that goes up to the C-level that, hey, look, we're in production now. Isn't that great? That people are rushing to that and all they're doing is blowing a bunch of cash on invalidated theses. And that's no good. Yes. Well, we're talking about things that leaders can do. There's a lot of things that come to mind. And most of them, unsurprisingly, are going to be around a leader's ability to focus on the culture and the product. Because when we're talking about different sort of phases of development, I think the process part of it is actually the part that we are over digesting and overthinking about as we typically do. So culturally, okay. So again, we talked about this early on your currency is learning, right? Which questions are, do you have to ask and which questions are you answering? And what is the minimum amount of work in the cheapest possible way you can validate the answers to those questions? Mm -hmm. That is your currency early on. And that's what you want people talking about early on. So if your team and your stakeholders are talking about a lot about getting work done or a lot about servers and a lot about, you know, how are we going to do this? And what's our marketing plan? And, and those kinds of things are what we're talking about when we don't even have like a solid idea yet. Call that out. Shift the narrative, shift the conversation and challenge the parts of the conversation that are antithetical to where you believe you are. And remember, yes. this is a value development. And in understanding and learning development, it's not a project plan. It's not a waterfall plan. Your burn down chart doesn't matter in ideation. Probably not in prototyping either. Your burn down chart in Jira is not important. You don't know so much more work than you actually know to do. You're going to discover it. That's the point. You don't know what the work is yet. In many, many respects, like a core part of our business that we view producers fundamentally by trade as leaders. And so when we have conversations with early stage teams who are like, well, when should we hire our first producer? How do we know when it's time to hire our first producer? Or we've talked to R&D teams where we say, hey, you should have a producer. And they go, well, it's too early for that. And part of the reason why is, again, they're thinking of a producer as somebody who manages work, somebody who manages physical creation of product. But if you have a leader, it doesn't have to be a producer. If you have a leader on your early stage team, ideation, R&D, whatever you want to call it, who is keeping the team oriented towards and focused on learning and also focusing on keeping costs down. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a person on that team and they manage to stop you from hiring four or five people that you don't actually need to answer the questions that you need to answer, that person is paid for their salary. So like they can 
on principle, keep the team focused on the things that are actually important during that phase. And that is where leadership is required. This is about smart people, whoever they are, coming together to tap into value that has not yet been tapped into and to come up with a thesis, to generate a thesis about a game that players will love. That's what it's about. And if you have leadership keeping people focused on that objective and building, even building systems to help people keep focused on that objective, that is a win. I often saw this assumption that we don't need production yet. And there was this idea of like, that's when we get to 30 plus people or when we need the sort of the spreadsheets to manage everything that's going on or when we have the complex Jira instance or whatever, that's when we need the producers. And to me, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. I don't care if you call him a producer. What you just described, having a leader there who's helping guide the culture, guide the thinking, help people stay focused on the learning, help people not focus on what's not important right now, that person or people, they're worth their weight in gold. And bring them in when you have an eight-person team. Help them orient your team and start them thinking. Because the reality, you know, we have the model of culture is the most foundational and most fundamental thing. You want that to be built when you're in ideation, when your game team is super small. And then you have the product layer. And then lastly, you have the process layer. And this person that we often think of as just this process, you know, monkey who's going to make sure that the, you know, our jeers and our burndowns and all that stuff is good. We'll bring them in when we get to that point. That person has a huge impact on the culture of the team. And you want to be establishing that early. I hope for your producer's sake and for your company's sake and your game's sake that that's how you view production. But if you don't, that's fine. Find a leader who can satisfy those things that Ben just mentioned yes. and bring them in. There's something in the flavor of like, well, we need an artist for the art direction and we need design for the design direction. And we need like, there's something in the flavor about that. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you're already thinking about work. You're already thinking about like what assets need to be created or what decisions need to be made. And, and I'm like, like the product. And again, the player to me is the thing that ties that all together. If it happens that you have that sort of I don't know, compilation of disciplines, that's fine. I don't care. I just, I think that there should not be a discipline focus, in my opinion, that early. There should be yeah. a, like, what are we actually building? What is me What is meaning for the player? What is value for the player? What's the sort of, like, again, differentiators that we're tapping into from a product perspective, like all this stuff? Yeah. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I know that this is a meaty topic, and there's probably so much more we didn't cover but we wanted to provide a holistic overview of how we see these phases because it really is a conversation point at basically every game studio we've ever seen. So in summary, today we explored some of the myths and mistaken assumptions of the classic SDLC applied to games. We also did a walkthrough of the phases as we see them and important points to keep in mind. Here they are. Number one, SDLC is more often abused than used effectively understand that and tread carefully. Number two, your currency or the thing you're pursuing should be learning early on and finish product later. And don't forget what your currency is at each phase. It's the most important thing that's going to keep you oriented correctly as a leader. Number three, early on, focus on answering questions and doing so as cheaply as possible. Keep all resources close to your chest. Make sure not to spend a dime more than you have to to learn valuable lessons. Number four, beware of production horniness. If you don't have high confidence that you've discovered or captured value, then be careful about going farther. Remember, as we talked about earlier, the farther you go, the more expensive it gets. 
it becomes incredibly costly to start building a bunch of stuff you don't know is valuable. So avoid that at all costs. Number five, be thoughtful about your gates and how you communicate them. They should be based on value and principles, not arbitrarily based on internal development things. Like if, if it's just like, well, you know, we need to check these boxes to go in production and you're like, these boxes are meaningless and are a bunch of things on a spreadsheet. Avoid that. Challenge that. As a leader, step in and get the conversation going. Do we have a validated thesis? Do we know who our players are? Do we understand what the game is? Has anyone been able to play it? Is it fun? If those questions aren't answered, none of this conversation matters at all. So remember to keep that in mind. And finally, as we close up, I want to leave all of you with an important thing. As Ben and I always talk about, whether you're a producer or any other sort of leader in games, like your role is going to be putting a positive frame around this and really generating the kinds of behaviors that you want to see that are helpful and valuable at each phase of the process. So keep that in mind that your role as a team lead and how your team behaves at each phase is going to be instrumental in you getting the outcomes that you want to get. Thanks again for joining us for Building Better Games. If this episode helped you today, please take a moment right now to rate us wherever you're listening. Seriously, just hit the stars. We'd love to see some five-star ratings show up. It helps us in the algorithms and things like that. So just, yeah, yeah, leave a star rating if you think this is a good podcast. Or if you don't, let us know.